Welcome to the McCoy Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. For us, the computer revolution began in 1985. The Apple IIc was the fourth model of the Apple II series of computer, but for me, and for us really, it was our very first. With a small, sleek case, built-in five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy drive, and complete with a carrying handle, the IIc was advertised as the first portable Apple II. In fact, the C stood for compact. The resulting seven-and-a-half-pound notebook-sized computer ushered in an era of techno-magic and opened the doors of digital exploration. The machine itself was not beautiful. It did introduce Apple's Snow White design language, a modern look designed by Harmit Esslinger, which immediately became the standard for Apple equipment and computers. The 2C also introduced a unique off-white coloring known as fog, chosen to enhance the Snow White design style. To be honest, it looked kind of like the yellowed plastic casing of older machines, but perhaps that was somehow endearing. I never had a computer growing up, but I still shared many of your early computing memories and experiences because, uh, well, number one, I basically lived at your house, (laughs) right, when we were kids. Definitely. And two, we also had a lot of shared early computing experiences at school together. And looking back, we actually, I think we had a surprisingly robust selection of computers at our school. And by that, I mean, there were like five of them. Um, (laughs) But that was a lot for us because as I believe... We have mentioned on the show before, we both went to a very small private Catholic school growing up. Now, most people think of a a private school. They think of something very fancy. I assure you, this was not fancy. (laughs) We did have a pretty nice computer lab, all things considered. It was in the same room as our typing class, remember? So the room was lined with these ancient manual typewriters that we learned to type on. They were in these stalls around the room. They, They were the kind that were iron and weighed like 275 pounds yes there were actual like physical work to type on so loud we had a couple of different kinds of computers in the lab we had commodore 64s and tandy trs 80s Mm. the commodore 64 was released in 1982 and guinness has it listed as the best-selling single specific computer model of all time at about 17 million units sold wow yeah it was very popular because it was relatively inexpensive at the time at $595, still not cheap, about $1,600 today. You also got a, a whopping 64 kilobytes of memory <laughs> with the Commodore. To put that into perspective, that's like a, a short Word doc <laughs> without any image, images embedded in it or anything, just text. The computer itself was contained within the, the big beige, chunky, now very iconic keyboard, which made it about as portable as you can get back then. We also had a couple of older computers those are the Tandys, the Tandy TRS-80s. And it's funny now, everyone knows Apple, obviously, and the Commodore 64 is widely remembered. But back in the late 70s, Tandy was right up there alongside Apple and Commodore as one of the three companies that really started the personal computer revolution by introducing personal computers that were pre-assembled. They were not some big crazy kit you had to put together. And they were also easy to find because they were sold widely in Radio Shack stores. Not that anyone remembers what that is, but there were a bunch of those back then. (laughs) And, you know, at a time when actual computer stores weren't much of a thing yet. The Commodore 64 definitely felt more fun than the Tandy back then, right? Which felt very businesslike. Honestly, I'm not even sure what we did on that one. It's so true. In general, there was so little to do on a computer like this at all. But some of my greatest early joys were ordering software from the Scholastic Book Club 
in addition to books, of course, we're nerds after all. But there was this one called Microzine. And this was an educational disc-based magazine that was published by Scholastic apparently between 1983 and 1992. And I specifically remember issue number 17. This came out in May of 86. And it had this fun little game that sticks with me to this day. It was called Mission Mix-Up, and I have to tell our listeners that I had to research this, and this drove me crazy for a number of years, right? I was trying to figure this out. I remembered it, and I couldn't find it. Finally, I stumbled upon it in some obscure forum, and God bless the internet. You know, people, people put all the details, so that's where I'm getting this. I do not remember all these things offhand, but I did remember this game. So Mission Mix-Up, you find yourself on an alien planet, and you have to mix various chemicals from this little chemistry kit to solve puzzles and find your lost spaceship. It is so right up my alley, right? This is an exploration game. You get to play with different ideas. You get to experiment with these little puzzles. And it's very language-based. There was a true sense of delight when you figured one out. Okay, so for example, here's how this worked. These little aliens called snookas, they ask you for, for example, they say, please give us some junk food. And then you have seven different chemicals in your arsenal. But they all have these sort of interesting names that have a, you could sort of figure out what they are. You can deduce what they mean by looking at their their roots, you know. So for example, foodium, based on food, hotium, it's hot, rubberall makes things that are rubbery or bouncy, right? And so for example, if you were to mix arium and foodium, right? So the air thing and the food thing, you got cotton candy. Hmm. And then these guys love it. The little little snooka aliens loved it. So it was so much fun solving all these little puzzles. And I mean, it's about as nerdy as it gets, right? But I was having just an absolute blast at night in the basement in the dark doing these little puzzle games and having so much fun. I don't think we ever did anything that fun on our computers at school. The big one for us at school is Oregon Trail, right? That's the big edutainment title everyone our age played back then. Probably why I remember the Commodore 64 being more fun because we played that. And of course, there was the greatest Commodore 64 game of all time that we played together, (laughs) a legendary title called Mr. Blippo. Yes, that was amazing. You you made this game... (laughs) Using a word processor. Yeah. It was incredible. And you basically using the space bar yep. and the arrows to move the little cursor, the little square cursor around, you created like a, the first, it was unbelievable. All the while going, I'm Mr. Blippo. <laughs> Moving around the screen, like making a Mr. Bill voice. And our teacher told us to be quiet. And <laughs> yeah, we made our own fun back then with our computers. Um, but all my real computer gaming memories are from playing with the Apple II at your house. King's Quest was always my favorite because it was so totally unlike and more advanced than anything I had access to on Nintendo or any of the other console that I had at home. It really was incredible. King King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne, was a masterpiece. And it was also maddeningly difficult. Came out in 1985, and it really had all of the trimmings to be catnip for us. A swashbuckling fantasy adventure with amazing graphics, sort of, for the time. But it was impenetrable and totally unforgiving. Nonetheless, we played it for hours trying to make sense of the obscure puzzles and just trying to soak up that environment. For us, this was a sight to behold. And mind you, this is before Zelda came into our lives. Yeah, this was a real, it was a real adventure game. You know, on consoles, that would come to mean something like Zelda when that did eventually come out. But a a computer adventure game was something very specific. Lots of choices, lots of puzzles. And this game was the first to make me feel like there were just endless possibilities right? Literally anything could be done, or at least it felt like it. But like you said, it was very unforgiving. With every single choice you made came risk. And one wrong move in this game, one mistake, and bam, 
you're dead pretty much instantly. I actually just bought a set of King's Quest 1, 2, and 3, a collection on uh, GOG, G-O-G.com for like 10 bucks. Nice. They do a lot of old games made to run on modern machines. And I played a bunch of this one for the show. And it's still really cute, very charming animation. The part where you find grandma's house, you come across like a cottage in the woods and you knock on the door and you hear a, a friendly voice say, come in and you go in and it's turns out she's the big bad wolf and suddenly jumps out of the bed and like chases you. I honestly, it made me jump the exact same way it did when I was a kid. Uh, I'd forgotten all about that part. It's still such a great game, but still, like we said, very, very hard. Well, speaking of difficult games that are impenetrable, Zork was a text-based interactive interactive fiction game that was developed by apparently originally by some folks at MIT. It came out in 1980 and I think I had all of them. There were a few different ones on a disc. I got later I got one that had sort of the best the sort of classics and the best of these text games. They were brilliant, they were amazing, but they were also incredibly vexing. Unlike the colorful graphics of King's Quest 2, this was the pure green text on the screen and yet it was riveting in a way. And you started out with those fateful words, west of house, you are standing in an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. So then you would literally type into the game something like open mailbox, and then it would spit back out. Opening the small mailbox reveals a leaflet. Okay, now what? So now you type read leaflet. And then you see, welcome to Zork. Zork is a game of adventure, danger, and low cunning. In it, you will explore some of the most amazing territory ever seen by mortals. No computer should be without one. (laughs) It was wild and weird, really weird, especially to our adolescent minds. It opened up new worlds and allowed us to explore for hours and hours into the night. Without a a graphical element to it, this was like the choose-your-own-adventure books that we love so much, like Come to Life. Yes. But instead of a few predetermined choices to make... You know, if you do this, turn to page, whatever, if you do this, again, it seemed like there were just limitless possibilities. You could do anything. It is so true. And you definitely couldn't because it had a very limited lexicon of terms, but it was so fun exploring. And, you know, they even had little clever things. If you typed in a swear word or if you did something stupid, it would really, you know what it was? It was great writing and you were interacting with the mind of a brilliant team of writers on these games. And they did a fantastic job of sort of covering up their limitations. Absolutely. Another one like that was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This was also super funny. Again, basically impossible text adventure game that that we loved. And that one I spent tons of time later. I, I realized I barely had scratched the surface of it. Later, I got some kind of a cheat manual and was able to go through a little bit more. And it actually is incredible. I'm sad that I was never able to get into these games because no matter how hard I tried, they were so obscure, right? Like one of there's a scene in that game where you have to try to understand what they're saying when you're on this Vogan alien spaceship. And there's a machine that dispenses the babble fish that goes in your ear. But it's the most outrageous, ridiculous set of Rube Goldbergian types of, you know, mechanics and shenanigans that only when I read through the thing, and even when I had it in front of me, I'm like, wait, really? Like, how would you know how to do this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Another game that was a lot more approachable was Captain Goodnight and the Islands of Fear. This also came out in 1985 by the beloved brand Broderbund. It was released on the Apple II, and this was one of my favorites that I remember. You had to go through air, sea, land, and you got to use different vehicles. Jets, jeeps, tanks, trams, boats, submarines. You even walked on foot for a bunch of it. And the goal was to deactivate this doomsday device on Doom Island. It was super hard but super cute. And I remember stepping away once to grab some water or something downstairs. I came back up and you see 
Captain Goodnight, the little character, this little tiny sprite, playing with a yo-yo as a little waiting animation. That completely blew my mind. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything quite like that. It was like an Easter egg built into it, but it added so much character. Champion of freedom, defender of justice, and all-around good guy (laughs) is what the title screen calls Captain Goodnight. Uh, If that wasn't the first idle animation in a game ever, it was definitely way, like definitely one of the first. The big one I think everyone thinks of is Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, you, you wait a minute, Sonic starts tapping his little foot, but this was obviously way before that. This game was so fun and it still looks great by Broderbund, like you said, one of the biggest names in early computer games, Prince of Persia, Load Runner, Choplifter, which I believe all of those did originate here on the Apple II, Mm. along with probably my favorite game of theirs which I played a ton of at your house as well, which is uh, Karatika, mm. Karatika. I don't know what that word, how to pronounce that word to this day, but I love the game. Definitely one of the earliest one-on-one martial arts fighting games ever, right? Pretty revolutionary for the time. We always called it Karatika, but that might be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that sounded better. There's one more game that I remember really fondly, Bruce Lee. This was a platform game originally written for the Atari 8-bit family and published in 1984 by Datasoft. It was released on the Apple IIc in the same year. You get to play as the titular hero, advancing from chamber to chamber in a wizard's tower, seeking the secret of immortality. It was charming, cleverly done, had such cool and brain-sticking music, and was honestly really fun to be Bruce Lee kicking bad guys' butts. The games were just so... Like I said, different than what we got on consoles. Some, like we said, Zork and King's Quest, obviously totally different kinds of games that we even could play on our Nintendo. But even the stuff that could have theoretically been on Nintendo, like Captain Goodnight, just felt totally different from similar style console games. The animation had a different look to it. Even the color palette. There were pinks and blues and greens I'd see on your monitor that just didn't seem to exist in the the games that I had. Not to mention the music and the sounds, right? Yes. Those were also had a very different set on the computer. Very, very different feel and sound to them. wife also had an apple II growing up and when i was telling her about the games we were going to discuss for the episode she said i had to mention her favorite bc the quest for tires you remember you were the little caveman from the old comic strip bc yeah comic strip right you're riding around on a stone oh my god i just quest for tires like the caveman movie the quest for fire I just oh, that's got that. So clever. I get this it. game is what from like 1982, and I'm literally just getting the joke now. <laughs> it was Ray Don Chong, and I want to say Ron Perlman were in the movie. Wow. Nice. Okay. Anyway, um, BC, yeah, she loved that one. And then she had her own mission mix up experience mm. because for a long time she's try she had been trying to remember a game that she played on her Apple II. And after a lot of Google sleuthing, we finally found it. And it was called Mop Town Parade. Mm. Even when I said the title, I was like, Mop Town Parade. She jumped out of her seat. She's like, that's it. Oh, my God, that's it. (laughs) So you made these guys. It almost seemed like something you would get in a micro zine or something, like some educational thing. You made these guys called Moppets. And there are different kinds with these stupid names. The game is like, do you want to make a a Murpet or a Jerpet or a a (laughs) Giblet or a Riblet? I forget what they are. When you make your guys and you have to, the, the goal of the game is to make them all, it's to teach like differentiation. You have to make them all different. 
And apparently they put on a little parade for you when you're done. I found a video of it. And I got to tell you, there are not many videos out there. Surprisingly. Right. Surprisingly, there's and not Google a lot. And Google kept trying to correct me. <laughs> it was like, do you mean Motown Parade? Do you mean Uptown Parade? I was like, no, I do not. I unfortunately do in fact mean Mop Town Parade. And it looks miserable. We watched this video and I looked at her and I was like, is, is this even a game? Anyway, uh, we found it and it stinks. Mop Town Parade stinks. If anyone out there listening has fond memories of it, uh, I'm sorry to inform you that your childhood was a lie. <laughs> Before I had a computer, so now we're talking probably around fourth grade or so, I remember some of the older kids on the school bus talking about computers and exchanging floppy disks. I was absolutely transfixed by these conversations, and I longed to know what this was all about. It would be a few years before I would get some real intel. Some of my favorite memories on this computer included the newness and the inherent mystery of this quote-unquote cyber world. You have to remember, we were not online at this point in any way. A lone, right? A lone green cursor light blinked silently in the darkness of a damp suburban basement. We were utterly alone and disconnected. But I remember one of my cousins came by to see it. PCs in general were pretty rare, right? At this yeah. point, at least in my circles, uh, in our circles. And the price was pretty high. I went back and looked. It was about $1,295 for this Apple, which is equivalent to over three grand today. I think that's pretty pricey. My cousin, hilariously, but honestly, with without trying to be funny, he sat down, he cracked his knuckles in almost like a caricature fashion. And he repeatedly started to type into the computer, give code into the command line, <laughs> as he was apparently attempting to hack into what was presumably the CIA database that was probably still on magnetic tape drives in Langley, Virginia at this point. I have no idea. I blame war games. I blame the movie War Games. You remember I mentioned the kids on the school bus trading discs? Okay, well, not long after I got my computer, I was getting off the bus one day and I saw it from the corner of my eye. They must have dropped a disc and it had skidded to the front of the bus and gotten jammed under a seat. I was the last stop and those kids had already left. So I quickly and surreptitiously retrieved it, determined to give it back to them the next day. I just wanted a quick peek at what they were exchanging and talking about so much. When I figured out how to load the disc, I was shocked and amazed by what I saw. Pages and pages of ASCII art of naked ladies. <laughs> it was a sight to behold. Asterisks, at symbols, number signs. They all came together to form semi-provocative shapes and images. I slammed open the disk drive and quickly shut down the computer. I was frightened and horrified. I really thought my parents were going to walk in. I was like, oh my goodness. I had no idea. It was the last thing I expected. The next day, I very casually returned it to the fellows. <laughs> Listen, they greedily snatched it back. And I was like, hey, I found this yesterday. I have no idea what's on here, guys. This is just a testament <laughs> to the desperation back then to find stuff like that, making uh, naked pictures out of equal signs and dollar signs. <laughs> Typography symbols. Passing it around, <laughs> whispering on the bus. Compared to what, what children have potential access to now, it's, um, it's downright charming. Oh, how far we've come. <laughs> Okay, then sometime in late 1989, I received my first Macintosh. 
the Macintosh SE30. I still have this machine today and it is in near perfect condition. It came with this beautiful green dust cover. It's on it to this day. That machine is choice and cherry. We got one when we were in eighth grade, our school got a single solitary Macintosh. Like I said, all the other computers and the ancient typewriters were around the, along the edge of the room, but the Mac was on a table in the center of the room. And I still remember very specifically opening the door to the computer lab and the two of us seeing it for the first time in my memory it's in a spotlight angelic music is playing oh it was beautiful <laughs> my biggest memory from that was shufflepuck cafe yes. a game again by broderbund imagine if there was like an air hockey table at the star wars cantina right it has all these fun ambient sounds you're like in a bar with all sorts of crazy looking aliens and it was from, you know, your, it was like a first person sort of perspective and you could use the mouse to control your air hockey paddle. And it was, it felt incredible. It felt like a totally new kind of game, a precursor to stuff like the Wii and all sorts of, you know, movement games and motion based games. Besides playing games, I think the other big thing there was to do on our computers was to use print shop. As it turns out, also by Broderbund. Wow. Broderbund. Um, whatever happened to them? Right. Yeah. We used print shop for, we would make those weirdly folded birthday cards <laughs> that I would never, I could never wrap my brain around how they were supposed to be folded and always folded them incorrectly and banners. <laughs> when you had print shop, literally any occasion merited a banner that probably took like, I don't know, two hours to print out. <laughs> yes, I had an image writer too dot matrix printer complete with the fan fold continuous feed paper with perforated tractor holes right i mean those little holes on the side yeah i mean it was the best was there a better feeling than when you were all done printing tearing those perforated edges off in one clean move and feeling them come off it's so satisfying mm. the closest mm -hmm. thing as an adult that i can think to it is when you're wrapping a present and you're cutting wrapping paper and your scissors like just kind of glide through the wrapping paper. It's the closest we'll get to that high. Exactly. Well, speaking of print shop, there's no doubt that that contributed to my love of fonts. So I've been obsessed with fonts since I was a little kid, right? And this just brought everything together. And it really is, if we go back to it, it really is a story about Steve Jobs because the legendary Apple founder in this wonderful article, they kind of told it like this. Quote, we all know the timeless tale of how a young, destitute Jobs attended and dropped out of Reed College. But what he did after can sometimes be overshadowed by how vital what he learned there has been. The calligraphy classes Jobs took and later audited after unenrolling from the school were largely responsible for the seismic shift in computing typeface that the Mac has been responsible for. So this article actually uh, from Digital Trends goes on and it says, calligraphy was about the most over-enrolled class at Reed. He was a freshman when he took the class, and that was most unusual. Usually only juniors and seniors got in, says former Reed calligraphy instructor Robert Palladino. How he got into the class, I don't know, but I'm glad he did. Finally, it goes on to say, Thomas Finney, a senior product manager for fonts and typography with Extensus, says Jobs' death is a change of an era. I remember painfully well the early days of computers when we had monospace fonts on screen before WYSIWYG and all that, he says. Finney explains, Jobs brought font menus to the masses, introducing not just experts, but average consumers to individually designed lettering. Quote, the idea that the average person on the street might have a favorite font was a radical thing. 
unquote. Wow. And I love this. This is so cool, right? I mean, yeah. it's so nerdy, but so cool. And I was really, really into fonts. And I was super into fonts when I got the book called The Macintosh Bible. This hefty tome, I mean, it really looks like a phone book for those old enough to remember what those are. You know, mm. uh, It was 1,241 pages of nerdy bliss, deep dives on obscure Macintosh settings, menus, tips and tricks, and most importantly, and relevant to our point right now, a gigantic chapter on fonts with all these examples like printed in the font. It was beautiful. And this hilariously clever copy like this one when they were discussing the classic font Chicago. And of course, the passage was written in that font. They said, quote, you look at Chicago so often on menus, in the titles of windows, and in dialogue boxes, that it's easy to forget how gorgeous it is. That's only fitting, since it's named after the Garden City, where virtually all the streets are tree-lined and where the lakefront, fringed with parks and beaches, stretches for 30 miles. Created by Bigelow, specifically for use on the Mac, Chicago is probably the most beautiful and functional bitmap font ever designed. To get that much style out of 72 dots per inch is an incredible accomplishment, unquote. Like just about everything else about computers, fonts have been so demystified for us now. You needed a book. You needed a book back then to learn about new fonts. Do you remember how crazy it would be when you would see a new font? Now... You can go online to to any number of websites and download millions of fonts for free. But back then, something as simple about a computer as a font could have this air of mystery about it. And like all of our other early computing experiences, it just, just felt special. We like to imagine the rise of technology as meteoric, Moore's Law raging and upgrades coming fast and furious. But at the time, it didn't feel that way at all. It was truly more of a punctuated equilibrium with, yes, moments of rapid change, but also slow, quiet, even meditative periods where we pecked at clacky keyboards while squinting at a command line in a cold, damp basement. Those chilly nights helped define us, and those early struggles galvanized us as computer nerds for life. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and join our mailing list at our website, McQuaidArcade.com, for info on upcoming episodes, live appearances, and more.